River Radio and the Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. Okay. Ta-da. The voice, River Radio of the Thames Valley. Good morning. It's turning pages here on River Radio. We've got the Booker Prize shortlist for you today. And we're looking at condiments in books. Hello there, I'm Heather and you're listening to Turning Pages with Julian and myself. Good morning, Julian. How are you today? I'm very well indeed. Good morning, good morning to you on this wonderfully sunny day. It is indeed and I'm particularly pleased because you're actually in the studio. I am indeed today, yes, live in Marlowe. (laughs) Absolutely, that's very very (laughs) exciting. (laughs) And of course we've had an amazing week with the uh, Queen's funeral. We have indeed. On yes, yes. Did I you was, watch it? I did indeed. Uh, I watched um, the the funeral um, uh, at the Abbey, and then the uh, the service at St George's Chapel as well. So watched most of the day. In fact, yeah. it was very very moving. It um, was yeah. yes. Uh, I've got to say, Britain looked amazing. Yes, yes, I mean, fantastic. Um, the armed um, forces and everybody involved, it mm. made you proud to be British. It did. And, yes. w- and Windsor was splendid. It was indeed, was indeed. Yes. So you're listening to Turning Pages and every week we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics because great books aren't just those on the bestseller list. So if you love reading or you just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. Thank you for joining us. Indeed it is. And as usual, we have an hour crammed full of interesting items for you this week. And we'll be looking at the short list for the Booker Prize this year. And Heather and I will be recommending a book, uh, a piece around the topic of condiments. And to start the show, we have been scouring the papers, as usual, to winkle out those interesting bits of book news for you. Right, so let's just start with that quick roundup of book stories. So, of course, we need to mention royal books. So, sales of royal books, as you'd imagine, rose with the death of our Queen. The highest ranking books include Queen of Our Times, The Life of Elizabeth II by Robert Hardman, which was published earlier this year. Uh, Queen Elizabeth, a platinum jubilee celebration, was the um, commemorative book designed for children that was given free to all children ah, in, the, yes. in England. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's pr- provided a lot of interest. And of course, we've got the other side of the coin, The Queen, The Dresser and The Wardrobe, which is written by Angela Kelly, who was the Queen's former senior dresser and a, and a big friend. So that was an interesting. But if you're looking for something more fictional, then can we also recommend The Queen and I by Sue Townsend, which is a Republican in 
a Republican imagines what would happen if the Queen was forced to live in Leicester. <laughs> I think that's a bit mean. Yes. Um, or The Uncommon Reader by Alan Bennett, which is uh, an amusing fantasy about the Queen reading the sorts of books reviewed in The Guardian. And we've actually reviewed that ourselves, haven't we? Have we have indeed. Yes. And it's a super book. It's one of my favourites. It's a very, very witty book. Yes. Uh, but of course, uh, it would be from Alan Bennett. Absolutely. <laughs> and as you can imagine, publishers have been rushing out new um, books about the Queen or republishing uh, their old established books. But one book that has uh, been pushed back is actually the uh, contentious Royal Book of the Year by Harry, Duke of Sussex, which is being delayed. It was due to be published in November and is now scheduled for next year sometime. Indeed, indeed. Well, this little bit of news is completely different. Um, how about baked owl and roasted puppies? Ooh. Now, these have been found to be cures in 180 medieval manuscripts which are currently being digitised by Cambridge University Library. Now, the prescription Descriptions are not for the faint-hearted. Now, gout, which had been a particular problem, seems to include the most gruesome ingredients for remedies, including animals. And, for example, one involved stuffing a puppy with snails and sage before roasting it and using the rendered fat as a salve. Oh. Yes, yeah. Do you think they'd eat the puppy afterwards? Well, I don't know. Well, well, it did have um, stuff with sage, so... hmm. I wonder what sort of sauce you produce for it. (laughs) (laughs) And another involved baking an owl until it could be pounded into a powder, then mixed with boar's fat to put on the body. Now, that must have meant a completely incinerated owl to be able to pound it to to, to dust. Now, there was a remedy for cataracts, although I wouldn't try any of these at home. And the treatment involved taking a hare's gallbladder and mixing it with honey before applying it with a feather for three nights. Brilliant, isn't it? Yes, indeed. (laughs) And academics say the documents give an insight into how grim treatments were before the advances of modern medicine. And a reminder of the pain and the precariousness of medieval life before antibiotics uh, and antiseptic and pain relief were all um, invented. The manuscripts contain 800 treatments, mostly from the 14th and 15th centuries, though some have been used for thousands of years. And they're now all digitalised with descriptions and transcriptions of their contents for all to see oh, online. brilliant. Fantastic. Yes. I'll definitely have a look at those. Yep. And talking about libraries, did you read that an intern at the Royal Library of Belgium has discovered an engraving of a work by Bruegel uh, while cleaning another piece designed by the Flemish master. So the 23-year-old was taking the cardboard backing from a piece of work Mm -hmm. by Peter Bruegel, the elder, dating from 1559. And she was soaking it in water Ah, to remove the backing. And um, she found that when the backing went, there was another piece of his work on the back. And it was thought to be a printer's proof. So it wasn't intended for publication. And it was later censored as it was mocking the Roman Catholic Uh, Church. So obviously they (laughs) must have felt it was... It was something they could just use mm. for backing then. So Bruegel, of course, died in 1569. He's famed for landscapes and scenes from ordinary life, such as the peasant wedding, which he did in 1567. He was a pioneer of using everyday subjects rather than religious themes. And the artist is seen as the founder of the Dutch and Flemish Renaissance. 
So something for that intern to remember. Absolutely. So, I mean, what, a, what an achievement, you I know, know. To, 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 at, at that age. Everybody else would be spitting feathers, wouldn't they? Yeah, indeed they would. <laughs> and now talking, you know, from one piece of high art, we move on to another piece oh, yes. of, of high um, uh, cinema, the Disney, the home oh. of Mickey Mouse. You can't get much higher you than can't. that. You can't, you know, quality <laughs> stuff. Well, Disney has decided to diversify slightly from its whole some heroines and dashing princes, which is their usual fare. So they to dramatise Jilly Cooper's Rutshire Chronicle novels, which captured the excesses and sexual revelation, oh, liberation, I beg your pardon, of the affluent elite of the 1980s England. Now, Disney promises a joyously mischievous rollercoaster ride, steamy love stories, all packed with larger-than-life characters. Oh, fantastic. Yes. <laughs> so actually, talking about Jilly Cooper, so Jilly Cooper is now in her late eighties. Gosh, and she was horrified at the amount of sex in her <laughs> bestsellers. I mean, fancy <laughs> reading your books from your earlier years <laughs> and shocked, <laughs> and shocked at yourself. <laughs> so she was telling. So Cooper was on uh, Graham Norton's podcast recently, and she was saying that she believes that her books were so popular because they were about glamorous people mm. misbehaving. And her first book, Riders, was written in 1969. Gosh. And she spent four years finishing it. And then she took it to a meeting with her publisher. But then she lost the entire novel um, when she went for lunch in central London and got rather drunk. (laughs) And when she got home, she got off the bus. She'd lost it. Oh, no. And it then took her another decade because, of course, at that time there was no computer. No, no, so it would be handwritten or typewriter. Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. You'd have the one copy. So it then took her <clears throat> 10 more years to rewrite the book. But she did feel that it was a far better book in the end. So perhaps that's how we can start our writing career. Well, now. exactly. So this is it. So, so there's hope for us all out there. So all of you. Um, uh, 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 amateur authors or want to be authors there's still time there's still time yes now talking about smutty books um unbelievably the merger of two publishing companies penguin random house and simon and schuster has spawned a series of books that satirize the book industry in what is described as corporate erotica oh dear me no (laughs) actually i'm thinking about our time in publishing a pretty gruesome subject actually (laughs) And it explores the idea um, that these uh, that the two companies are in fact lovers. The stories are inspired by the takeover and written by, not surprisingly, anonymous authors. And they include scenes such as the chief executive Simon Schuster feeling a hollow ache in his heart that can only be filled by a penguin. And in another book, the penguin is dis- described as a considerate. Oh, that's lover. good. That's yes. good. Now, alongside the sex, <clears throat> the book also. Also, the books also sanitise the industry's um, hierarchy and criticise late payments to authors, reflecting the industry's unhappiness at the takeover and illustrating the old adage that one should never wrong a writer. They get their revenge in print. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> What's happening with the Simon and & Schuster and uh, Penguin Random House? Well, this it was, was going ahead and then um, America seemed to feel that it was going to go... 
against the monopolies. Yeah, I was Sorry. going to say, because I think there might have been um, a question raised with the uh, the Mergers and Monopolies Commission or whatever the equivalent is in America as to whether it would make it such a corporate... Because, to, to be honest, with Penguin having merged with Random House, yes, I mean, yes. that's a mammoth yeah. thing. And now, when you, we, when, you, when you attend the International Book Fairs, and you, the, the demographics now is that on the top floor of Hall 6 at, at Frankfurt, it's basically taken over by these behemoths. Yeah. So the, the, so the third floor is basically a Penguin Random House, yeah. Houseville, so yeah. to speak. And then you may have um, the Hachette side. And then that's basically... So Penguin Random House was massive. And then now to add Simon & Schuster. Simon & Schuster UK is a very small part yes, of that. But in, but America, in America, it's, mm, it's huge. Mm, so that would be an eye-wateringly yeah. um, large corporation. In com- in comparison, or sort of mm. on the positive side, mm. they probably need to be huge to compete with Amazon. Well, yeah, yes, so yes, that's the problem, yes, isn't yes, it? They're reacting yes, to that yes. anyway. We wait and see. We we'll wait and see the yeah. outcome of that. Yes. Now, I've got a little political story here, oh, yes. which I thought was brilliant. So it's the rise of the new prime minister, Liz Truss, of course, has been a surreal experience for the author of Eats, Shoots, and Leaves. Do you remember? It was that selling yes, book indeed, on that, grammar. Yes. Yes. Now, Lynn Truss, obviously, that's the uh, the lady's, uh, the author's, author's name. name. Yep. She said recently that she always thought her name was ghastly, but it had the benefit of no one would ever confuse her with anyone else. How wrong she was. <laughs> she recently received an Amazon review for one of her novels that said the author would do better concentrating on running the country than writing rubbish. <laughs> It just goes to show you, you should never read your critics. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's brilliant, isn't it? Oh, dear. Oh, and then finally, Val McDermott has been warned off using the phrase Queen of Crime to promote her books by none other than Agatha Christie Limited. Now, the company that controls the estate of the late author sent McDermott a cease and desist letter to her publisher, even though she has sold more than 17 million books, including a Miss Marple authorised book. Mm. Now, obviously, seemingly, Agatha Christie Limited has trademarked the phrase Queen of Crime, so anyone else who's thinking of using it would be in a violation of their copyright. I don't think you could trademark sentences like Queen of well, Crime. I mean, people, do you remember Gaza tried to trademark Gaza? Yes, exactly. What about all those Gazas at school? Yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Turning Pages on River Radio because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. Coming up, we'll be exploring condiments in books. But first, we're going to take a look at the shortlist for this year's Booker Prize. Indeed, the Booker Prize list has uh, had the thumbs up from critics this year with a selection of really enjoyable books that even make you laugh, which is a little bit unusual for Booker Prize um, uh, selections. Yes. Uh, uh, Not that that means that they are lightweight in any way. Now, topics include very serious subjects, although humour is a good strategy and, and, and and a line through and a deal with difficult issues. 
Two of the books are also very short, and in, in, in essence, to be honest, they're actually novellas. Now, the chairman of the judges, Neil McGregor, said that the six books are set in different places at different times, and all are about events that in some measure happen everywhere and concerns us all. Now, this year, the authors represent five different nationalities from four continents, with an equal split of men and women on the list, which is really good. They are in line to win a prize worth £50,000 to the author. The winner is announced on October 17th, so lots of times to get um, to yourselves reading the books. So nip out to your favourite bookshop and select some of the books and choose your favourite beforehand. Yeah, especially as some of them are quite short. So yes, good. exactly. Certainly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right, so we're going to tell you about each of the, uh, the shortlists and then also we've got a little, a very short reading yes, for each have. of them. Yes, So uh, the first one is No Violet Bulawayo's book called Glory, which is published by Chateau and Windus. Now this is an energetic and exhilarating joyride of a book which tells the story of an uprising told by a vivid chorus of animal voices that help us to see our human world more clearly. So it's sort of an, an animal farm type book, mm. which is set in Robert Mugabe's um, Zimbabwe. Ah. So in this political allegory, a land has been ruled for 40 years by the corrupt old horse and his Gucci-wielding, wearing a donkey wife. <laughs> Bulawayo's debut no- novel, We Need New Names, was also shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2013. Oh. So she's obviously good. Mm. So let's listen to a short reading. When at last the father of the nation of
Jabanjana, distinguishable in his signature white bandana that made the dissenters promptly turn around and retaste their steps, miserable tails between them. And then we have The Trees by Percival Everett, which is published by Influx Press. And this is a violent history that refuses to be buried in Everett's striking novel, which combines an unnerving murder mystery with a powerful condemnation of racism and police violence. Someone is richly murdering rednecks in the run-down town of Money, Mississippi. At each murder scene, a corpse of a black man is found clutching the victim's testicles. The police procedural comes satire zips along with smart one-liners and we have an extract for you The Trees by Percival Everett Money, Mississippi looks exactly like it sounds named in that persistent southern tradition of irony and with the attendant tradition of nescience the name becomes slightly sad and marked The gathering was neither festive nor special, but usual. It was the home of Wheat Bryant and his wife Charlene. Wheat was between jobs, was constantly, ever, always between jobs. Charlene was always quick to point out that the word between usually suggested something at either end to somethings or destinations, and that Wheat had held only one job in his whole life, so he wasn't exactly between anything. Charlene worked as a receptionist at the Money Tractor Exchange J. Edgar Price Proprietor, the official business name, no commas, for the, both sales and service, though the business had not exchanged many tractors of late or even repaired many. Times were hard in and around the town of Money. Charlene always wore a yellow halter top, the same colour as her dyed and puffed hair, and she did this because it made Wheat angry. Wheat chain drank cans of Falstaff beer and chain-smoked Virginia Slim cigarettes, claiming to be one of those feminists because he did, telling his children that the drinks were necessary to keep his big belly properly inflated and the smokes were important to his bowel regularity. When outside, Wheat's mother, Granny Carolyn, or Granny C, wheeled herself around in one of those wide-tired electric buggies from Sam's Club. It was not simply like the buggies from Sam's Club, it was, in fact, permanently borrowed from the Sam's Club down in Greenwood. It was red and had white letters that spelled AMS clue. The hard-working electric motor emitted a constant loud whir that made conversation with the old woman more than a bit of a challenge. And this is Everett's second uh, novel, and maybe his UK breakthrough. And we just want to apologise briefly because we found there was a technical hitch, and we think that you may not have heard the, the first, first reading, uh, reading yeah. and may have just missed a little bit of, of 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 that reading there. So sorry about that. Right. So the next book is Alan Garner's Treacle Walker. 
published by Fourth Estate. Now, this is the latest fiction from a remarkable and enduring tale, brilliantly illuminates an introspective young mind trying to make sense of the world around him. Now, recognisable to all Ghana fans, uh, the book is set on a Cheshire moor. A lonely boy with a squint meets a man called Treacle Walker, a mysterious magical healer. Now, Garner will be the is is the oldest um, nominee for a Booker Prize, and he will be celebrating his eighty eighth birthday when the winner Gosh. is announced. <coughs> so, what a birthday <coughs> present that will be! Anyway, let's listen to the start of the book. Ragbone, ragbone, any rags? Pots for rags, dungy stone. Joe looked up from his comic and lifted his eye patch. Noonie rattled past the house and the smoke from her engine blew across the yard. It was midday, the sky shone. Ragbone, ragbone, any rags? Pots for rags, donkey stone. Quick, Joe, now, Joe. Joe pulled the patch down, got off his mattress on the top of the chimney cupboard and stood at the big window. The last of Noonie's smoke curled through the valley and along the brook. He could see no one in Barncroft or Poolfield or Big Meadow or on the track between the top and bottom gates, and trees hid the way up from there to the heath. He went back to bed. Ragbone, ragbone, any rags? Pots for rags, donkey stone? The voice was below the window. He climbed down again. There was a white pony in the yard. It was harnessed to a cart, a flat cart with wooden chests on it. A man was sitting at a front corner of the cart, holding the reins. His face was creased. He wore a long coat and a floppy, high-crowned hat, with hair straggling beneath. And a leather bag was slung from his shoulder across his hip. Ragbone, ragbone, any rags? Pots for rags, donkey stone? He looked up at Joe. Joe opened the window. Even from there he saw the eyes. They were green velvet. What do you want? he said. Rag and bone, said the man, and you shall have pot and stone. That's fair, or isn't it? Wait on, said Joe. I'm coming. He rummaged in the cupboard and found an old pair of pyjamas. He ran downstairs to his museum and raised the glass lid. There was his collection of bird's eggs and a lamb's shoulder blade he'd picked from a molehill by the railway embankment. He took the shoulder blade, opened the door and went into the yard. I've got these. Come aboard, buccaneer, said the man. Joe put his foot on a wheel spoke and climbed onto the cart. The man made room for him at the corner and Joe sat down. And then we have The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida by Sheehan Karuna Tilaka, published by Sort of Books. Now, this is a rip-roaring and mordantly funny satire set amid the murderous mayhem of a Sri Lanka uh, beset by civil war. Now, a Sri Lankan journalist is found dead, a victim of the Civil War. His dismembered body is sinking in the Byra Lake, and he has no idea who has killed him. At a time when scores are settled by death squads, suicide bombers and hired goons, the list of suspects is depressingly long. But even in the afterlife, time is running out. He has seven moons, which is a week, to find out and get his friends to expose the culprits. Hard to do uh, this when you're stuck in the afterlife. Now, Karuna Talaka is seen as one of Sri Lanka's foremost novelists. And in addition to novels, he has written rock songs, screenplays and travel stories. And we have a short reading here. 
The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida by Sheehan Karanatalaka. The memories come to you with pain. The pain has many shades. Sometimes it arrives with sweat and itches and rashes. At other times it comes with nausea and headaches. Perhaps like amputees feeling absent limbs, you still hold the illusion of your decaying corpse. One minute you are retching, the next you are reeling, the next you are remembering. You met Jackie five years ago in the casino at Hotel Leo. She was twenty, just out of school and losing pathetically at Baccarat. You were back from a torrid tour of the Vani, unhinged by the slaughter, breaking bread with shady people, seeing the bad wherever you looked, and wearing your notorious red bandana. You had sold the photos to Johnny at the Associated Press, and cashed a welcome six-figure cheque. Even in Lankan rupees, six figures are better than five. You had outplayed the house at Blackjack, whacked the crab at the buffet and washed it down with some free gin. A regular day at the office. Don't bet on ties, sister, you said to the strange girl with frizzy hair and black makeup. She looked at you and rolled her eyes, which you found strange. Women usually like the look of you, not knowing that you prefer cock to cooch. A trimmed beard, an iron shirt, and a bit of deodorant will elevate you above a herd of sweaty Lankan hetero males. I just won twenty thousand rupees, she said. You noticed she was alone and that no one was hitting on her, both unusual for women in casinos in Colombo. And the chances of you winning that again are nine percent, and this house only pays out seven to one minus commission, which means follow that strategy a hundred times and you will lose, even when you win. A man who knows everything. What a surprise. What a surprise. I, indeed, that sounds good. Right, so the next one is Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan, published by Faber. Now, a tender talk of hope and quiet heroism, and it's both a celebration of compassion and a stern rebuke of the sins, excuse me, committed in the name of religion. This book is set in County Wexford in 1985. A coal merchant's Christmas delivery rush is interrupted by a young woman half frozen to death in a nunnery coal house. It's a touching novel and it shows how you can grapple with something big like the uh, mandolin uh, laundry scandal with remarkable economy. This book's only about 19,000 words long and if it wins would be the shortest prize winner ever. So Keegan is a novelist and a short story writer whose work has won numerous awards and has been translated into 30 languages. Let's listen to the beginning. In October, there were yellow trees. Then the clocks went back the hour and the long November winds came in and blew and stripped the trees bare. In the town of New Ross, chimneys threw out smoke, which fell away and drifted off in hairy, drawn-out strings before dispersing along the quays. And soon the river barrow, dark as stout, swelled up with rain. The people, for the most part, unhappily endured the weather. Shopkeepers and tradesmen, men and women in the post office and the dole queue, the mart, the coffee shop and supermarket, the bingo hall, the pubs and the chipper, all commented in their own ways on the cold and what rain had fallen, asking what was in it and could there be something in it. For who could believe that there was again another raw cold day? 
children pull their heads up before facing out to school, while their mothers, so used now to ducking their heads and running to the clothesline, or hardly daring to hang anything out at all, had little faith in getting so much as a shirt dry before evening. And then the nights came on, and the frost took hold again, and blades of cold slid under doors and cut the knees off those who still knelt to say the rosary. Down in the yard, Bill Furlong, the coal and timber merchant, rubbed his hands, saying if things carried on as the way they were, they would soon need a new set of tyres for the lorry. She's on the road every hour of the day, he told his men. We could soon be on the rims. And it was true, hardly had one customer left the yard before another one arrived in, fresh on their heels, or the phone rang, with almost everyone saying they wanted delivery now or soon. That next week wouldn't do. Furlong sold coal, turf, anthracite, slack and logs. These were ordered by the hundredweight, the half hundredweight, or the full tonne, or lorry load. He also sold bales of briquettes, kindling and bottled gas. The coal was the dirtiest work, and had in winter to be collected monthly off the quays. Two full days it took to the men to collect, carry, sort and weigh it all out, back at the yard. Meanwhile, the Polish and Russian boatmen were in novelty going about town in their fair crops and long buttoned coats with hardly a word of English. Oh, indeed. And finally, um, uh, last but not least, we have O. William by Elizabeth Strout, which is published by Viking. Now, this is, this is the best-selling author of Elizabeth Strout, returns to her beloved heroine, Lucy Barton, in a luminous novel about love, loss and the family secrets that can erupt and bewilder us at any time. By chance, Lucy Barton, now a successful writer, reconnects with her first husband, William. As they deal with a family secret in Maine, we learn about the special relationship between the two. And we have a short reading for you here. Oh, William by Elizabeth Strout. I would like to say a few things about my first husband, William. William has lately been through some very sad events. Many of us have, but I would like to mention them. It feels almost a compulsion. He is 71 years old now. My second husband, David, died last year, and in my grief for him, I have felt grief for William as well. Grief is such a... oh, it is such a solitary thing. This is the terror of it, I think. It is like sliding down the outside of a really long glass building while nobody sees you. But it is William I want to speak of here. His name is William Gerhardt, and when we married I took his last name, even though at the time it was not fashionable to do so. My college roommate said, Lucy, you're taking his name. I thought you were a feminist. And I told her that I did not care about being a feminist. I told her I did not want to be me any more. And at that time I felt that I was tired of being me. I spent my whole life not wanting to be me. This is what I thought then. And so I took his name and became Lucy Gerhardt for eleven years. But it did not ever feel right to me, and almost immediately after William's mother died, I went to the motor vehicle place to get my own name back on my driver's licence, even though it was more difficult than I had thought it would be. I had to go back and bring in some court documents, but I did. I became Lucy Barton again. We were married for almost twenty years before I left him, and we have two daughters, and we have been friendly for a long time now. How? I'm not sure exactly. 
There are many terrible stories of divorce, but except for the separation itself, ours is not one of them. Sometimes I thought I would die from the pain of our separating and the pain it caused my girls, but I did not die, and I am here, and so is William. Because I am a novelist, I have to write this almost like a novel, but it is true, as true as I can make it. And I want to say, oh, it is difficult to know what to say. But when I report something about William, it is because he told me or because I saw it with my own eyes. So I will start this story when William was 69 years old, which is less than two years ago now. Yes, that's good, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So Barton is a Pulitzer Prize winning novel, I think, a novelist. Um, well, in the story, yes. I mean, yes, the, the, yes that, that, that is a role. That's her role. Yes, she is a, yeah. a prize-winning uh, um, a novelist in, uh, within the story. Yeah. Yes. So yes. if you are interested in reading the sh- six shortlist finalists for the Booker Prize and making your own mind up who should be the winner, they are... Uh, Bulawayo's Glory by No Violet, published by Chatto and Windus. Yes, or even No Violet Bulawayo. Oh, I say, I beg your pardon. <laughs> I beg your pardon, Mr. Bulawayo. <laughs> Alan Garner, Treacle Walker, published by Fourth Estate. Uh, the Trees by Percival Everett, published by Influx Press. Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan, published by Faber. Uh, the Seven Moons of Marley Almeida by Sheehan Kanuna, Karuna Talaka. And O oh William by Elizabeth Stroud, published by Viking. So what do you reckon, Jules? What one would you pick? Well, I have to say, I'm, I'm going to hedge, because I, th- I think for me, the toss-up, for me, um, uh, it's, is literally the, uh, it's between the, uh, the Trees by Percival Everett and The Seven Moons of uh, Marley Almeida by Sheehan Karuna Talaka, which I forgot to mention was published by Sorter Books. I, f- I think those are the two that strike me as, as really being the wittiest. Um, yes, although yeah. you don't necessarily win the Booker Prize for being witty. No, you don't. But in fact, actually, I don't think any, anyone's won the Booker Prize for a witty book before now, <laughs> so true. they're in with a good chance this yeah. year, I think. Also, I, I think, oh, um, oh, I mean, it seems to be the, the three I've been reading about, but the um, oh, William is also quite interesting because, uh, as we were discussing before, whilst it was on, that she writes... Of, about almost mundane things yes. which is a very interesting perspective to yeah. say how how you think oh gosh this is a famous um author pulitzer prize winning author but she lives a very ordinary life in yes. a way. yeah yeah so what, what so do you I, think? well i quite like the trees by mm-hmm. uh percival everett i thought that sounded great mm. so i think i'll definitely read that yes i think uh, small things like these have been has uh has been actually suggested as the, the one for the money ah. um but I quite like Alan Garner. Mm-hmm. I mean, on his 88th birthday. Yes, that, that'd be, wouldn't that, that be would a be brilliant present? Yeah, what a birthday present. 50 grand. I know. <laughs> that would be lovely. And the rest, of course, and the, and the recognition exactly. of um, a job well done. Yeah. Now, this is Turning Pages, in case you've forgotten, on River Radio, your book programme. Now, we thank you for listening. So if you've just joined us, we have missed you. But never fear, you can't escape us, because you can listen again um, to our podcast, which, uh, from whichever service you prefer to use and all you have to do is simply search for turning pages on river radio podcast and listen whenever and wherever you are now river radio has a host of excellent programs for you to listen to including music programs and talk shows along with your favorite cultural program which to remind you is talking pages or even turning pages 
turning pages. I, I think it's because I got this thing I quite like talking pictures on television. <laughs> yeah. Yes, turning pages, I beg your pardon. This is, and I've confused you. You don't know which programme you're going to, to tune into. So into turning pages. So make a date with turning pages. Uh, and we're on every Wednesday, as you know, between 11am and 12 noon. Great. So, and now for the theme of the week, which is about condiments. And, and I've got to say, that was Julian's suggestion, because that's quite an unusual topic, to be fair. <laughs> However, we have fittingly transformed it into a tribute to the Queen. Mm-hmm. As, of course, there are a couple of companies that supply condiments to the Queen and hold royal warrants. Of course there are. Yes. So, a couple of quick facts about royal warrants you may not know. First of all, they are, of course, officially a royal warrant of appointment and a mark of recognition to people or companies who regularly regularly supply goods or services to various members of the royal household headed by the monarch. It's the monarch who decides who may grant royal warrants. Now it will be up to His Majesty King Charles III. And royal warrants of appointment are granted for up to five years to a named individual. So I thought that was interesting. Mm, mm, yes. So it's to an individual at a company yes. who are given the right to display the royal coat of arms, although they're not allowed to claim or imply that the business has any exclusive rights of mm. supply. And when a monarch dies, the warrants granted are subject to review and warrant holders have two years to discontinue the use of the royal arms, mm. uh, unless, of course, they've been picked yes. again. And the interesting thing about the named person within yeah. that company, if that person leaves the company or dies, then the warrant is voided. Uh-huh. Yes. So I've got a friend who holds royal warrants Ooh. for calligraphy. <gasps> Wow, which is superb because that's linked with our oh, cultural programme. Yes. Now, presently, there are two um, condiments uh, being given as the specific trade who have supplied Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth. HP Foods is one of the condiment suppliers for supplying HP sauce to the Royal House. The other is an American company, which is a McElhenney company, which holds the Royal Warrant uh, for condiments for supplying Tabasco sauce source. Now, interestingly, the Malden Crystal Salt Company, though supplying salt to the royal household, its warrant is under the food and drink category rather Uh. than the condiment, which is interesting. Now, not to be outdone, the late Queen launched her own condiment line in January uh, this year with Sandringham tomato ketchup and Sandringham brown sauce, both made from ingredients sourced entirely from the Sandringham estate. And do they have royal warrants themselves? Well, now that will be a tricky one for the king, <laughs> won't it? Because, you know, uh, d- does he grant himself a, a warrant? Royal warrant. <laughs> well, if he doesn't, it doesn't bode very well for <laughs> Well, I don't know. But then, of course, it, it would be it'd be a delicate problem, wouldn't it? Yes. But, but, well, presumably, it, it, the truth is, yes, it would be supplying the royal household. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I, I, you can certainly go on to the Sandringham Estate. I think it's uh, the website, I think, is closed until after the official of period of mourning. Yeah. But do go on there. They they, they look very nice and the, the, the ingredients sound lovely. Of course, they... 
they're not going to be up against the HP price uh, no, band. But I think they'd be a lovely thing for presents yeah. if you didn't want to buy them for yourself. Yes. But they, uh, they, they sound really actually quite delicious. Great. Mm. So, of course, as a programme devoted to books and publishing, it's gratifying to note that a few companies involved in our trade mm, indeed. were granted warrants. So there's Barnard and Westwood Limited for printing and bookbinding and a local company, Temple Bookbinders in Oxford, for hand bookbinding. And of course, Hatchard's booksellers in Piccadilly have three royal warrants, including the Queen, now King Charles, obviously as Prince Charles. Um, and these all are, of course, now under review. But maybe His Royal Highness King Charles III may his extend his patronage to these firms once more. Indeed. And one would imagine that Barn, uh, Barnard and Westwood Limited will have been the company responsible yes. for printing the orders of service for so. the Queen's yes. funeral. Yes. Now, so it comes to, to my um, book, which is uh, Red Sauce, uh, Brown Sauce, A British Breakfast Odyssey by Felicity Cloak. Now, a condiment, by a simple definition, is described as a seasoning, and the simplest being salt and pepper. However, condiments expand beyond the simplest of seasonings to describe a preparation which has been created to be added to food, usually after cooking, and is designed or designed to enhance the flavour of dish or to complement it. The term condiment, which comes as no surprise, comes from the Latin condimentum, meaning spice, seasoning, sauce, and originally described foods which had been pickled or preserved, but over the time the meaning has changed considerably. Now, the most common of condiments to be found practically in every household are, of course, tomato ketchup and brown sauce. And when we think of condiments, and particularly I do, I would tend to think of them as prepared products like table sauces, such as ketchup, which is also called catsup in in, in, uh, in America as mm-hmm. well. Brown sauces, including Worcestershire sauce, mushroom ketchup, mustards, pickle-lily, Branston pickle, mint sauce, and many more. However, common everyday items which we may not consider condiments are in fact condiments, including butter, wow. cheese, cream, olive oil, even lemons. Wow, yes. okay. Now, it's no surprise that condiments have been around uh, since Roman times, since they gave us the name in the first place. But condiment preparations are, were also being made in ancient Greece, ancient India and ancient China, and one of the oldest surviving being a fish sauce. In fact, a number of, of Asian countries have a version, including Thailand, which is called Nampla. Now, the Romans, too, made a fish sauce by <laughs> crushing the innards of various fish and then fermenting them with um, in salt. Uh, and they called one of them a garum and the other was a liquamen. And they're famously smelly, aren't they? Yes, they yes. are very mm. pungent indeed. Even today, the village fishing village in, uh, of Kitara in Campania, Italy, produces a fish sauce made from anchovies called Collatora di Alici. And let's not forget our own glorious British anchovy-based condiment, Liam Perrin's Worcestershire sauce. And there's also things called Gloucestershire sauce and things like that, isn't it, that have just gone by the wayside. Ah, right. Yes, was there a Gloucestershire sauce? Yeah, yeah. there was. There's oh, an right. advert for it um, in uh, in an old book that I've yes. seen. Um, 
gosh. But, uh, yeah, yeah, really um, amazing. I had no idea what it was like. No, we, we, indeed, indeed. Well, there we go. Now, the, this introduction to good condiments um, in general brings me to my chosen book, which is Red Sauce, Brown Sauce, um, and British Odyssey, Breakfast Odyssey. Now, Felicity Cloak may be known to um, our listeners for her long-running How to Make the Perfect series of articles in The Guardian. And Felicity also writes the food column for The New Statesman. Uh, in addition, she's written six books, and the last before this one was the highly acclaimed uh, One More Croissant for the Road. So she's very much breakfast girl, isn't she? She's a breakfast girl, mm. yes. And she's quite a dedicated cyclist, as we hear, because she did, I think she did the, the, the French one on a bicycle as well. Mm-hmm. Now, in this epic, um, the author undertook what she called the Great expectation note the pun there listeners Um, around the UK to explore the British obsession with breakfast and to discover the equal passion we have in choosing whether to douse our breakfast bacon sarni in tomato ketchup or brown sauce this book is in fact actually much much more than than a quest to see how many Britons prefer ketchup over brown sauce it is a travelogue a cookery book a geography book a history book and much more and what what are you are you a Bacon and tomato or bacon? No, I, I have to say, I, I was thinking about this as I was reading the book, and I, I must admit I'm a brown sauce on the oh, bacon. Oh, Yes. And, because one day I thought, well, I'm going to have a bacon sandwich, and I'm going to put tomato ketchup on it, and I didn't really enjoy it. And I even put, um, I even put um, a brown sauce on a, a sausage sandwich. Ah, uh, no, so yeah. my husband, definitely sausage and brown sauce. Right. But bacon and tomato Tomato, right, interesting, very interesting. Now, the, 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 the author, Felicity, had some difficulties when she was preparing for this book, not least that she was going to travel most of the way on her bicycle and earlier on in the book falling off and badly spraining her ankle. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't very pleasant. The poor woman was limping around, really had a, a difficult time. At that point, she was, was, was cycling with a friend, so that, yeah. that helped a, li- a little bit. But she also undertook um, to, to travel once um, it was allowed after the lockdown. However, she still faced a number of obstacles in some factories that she wished to visit, such as the the Marmite factory in Burton-on-Trent, who were, she writes, keen as Coleman's mustard <laughs> to see her, changed its mind when the Delta variant oh, emerged. No. Yes. And um, so all she could do was look longingly through the factory gates. Now, the journey is indeed epic, and and though it was not completed in one go, it truly does cover the British Isles in pursuit of sauce and breakfast materials. At Falmouth, it was all about hogs pudding, then across to Wales to talk about cockles and lava bread. Whilst in Wales, Felicity uh, tasted honey at Aberdovey and saw baked beans at Port Port Talbot. Mm -hmm. Baked beans in Port Port Talbot, you ask? Yes, for in Port Talbot, you can find the Baked Bean Museum. Now, I didn't know we had a museum for baked beans. Nor did I. And whilst not wishing to be unkind to Port Albert, you won't be surprised to learn that the Baked Bean Museum is the town's number one tourist attraction. <laughs> Pet is going to be as good as the Keswick Pencil Museum. Well, actually, it is quite interesting because it's owned and run by a baked bean enthusiast, formerly known as Barry Kirk, <laughs> yes. but now known legally by Deed as Captain Beanie. Of course he is. Yep, and he will greet you dressed as a giant baked bean and escort you personally round the museum. I'm going to have to go to think, Port Talbot now. you must. Well. <laughs> now, from, from, from Port Talbot, uh, Felicity travels to Birmingham and Liverpool where she is denied her long-cherished visit to the Marmite factory but gets to try out some Staffordshire oat cakes. 
Kippers are discussed at length on the Isle of Man, where the author tells of the great decline in the island's kipper trade. Now, apart from the tailless cat, the Isle of Man was famous for its Manx kippers, um, the choice of kings. However, tastes at breakfast time have changed and the herring stocks around the waters of the island have diminished so much that one of the last two kipper houses, Moors, has to get its herring from Fraserburgh, 420 miles away. Um, from the Isle of Man the author's journey takes her to Liverpool and Belfast tasting soda fars and potato bread along the way before heading further north to Carbridge to taste porridge then to Arbroath letting us know that the McKay's of Arbroath is the last remaining producer of Dundee marmalade and also telling us that sadly the world's leading Dundee firm of marmalade producers James Keeler and Sons went out of business in 1992 and they're still famous yeah, due to maladministration rather than anything else, oh. uh, and not a lack of demand for its products. And in its heyday, James Keeler and Sons had factories in Guernsey, in the east end of London, uh, in Germany, as well as its home factory in Dundee. And Oh yes, and of course, another Arbroath famous food is discussed and tasted, which is the Arbroath Smoky. Oh yes, smoky. absolutely, yes. definitely a breakfast yes. dish. And did you know the difference between the Arbroath Smoky and the Kipper? No, go on. Well, the Kipper is herring, yeah. and the Arbroath Smoky is in fact... Um, uh, and has now gone straight out oh, of my no. head. Uh, paddock, haddock. Oh, yes. Okay. And they're small and they're haddock. Smoked. They're smoked. Yes. Yeah. And they're small haddock, so they're whole. So yeah. they're, uh, haddock can, but they're particularly small. And they have to be small, and that's the difference. Oh, mm. I didn't know that. No. Thank yes. You. And. They can only be called an Arbroath Smoky if they come from Arbroath. Quite course, right, yes. too. Yep. Now, returning to London down the eastward side of the country, Felicity shares uh, with us stotty cakes, tea and pikelets, Weetabix, black puddings, sausage, bacon, jams, eggs, and finally that great British of British breakfast dishes, Bobble and Squeak. Bobble and Squeak for breakfast. Oh, no, lovely. That's, a, that's the best time to have it. Is it? <clears throat> yes, yes. Of course, it's after Christmas, um, Christmas Day's lunch, and then you make that from Boxing Day with your eggs. We have left over cabbage and right. potatoes. That, Julian, that's your breakfast right, tomorrow. Let, let, let's do that. It's wonderful. I love to make it. I really do. Now, as mentioned, Red Saucer and Brown Sauce is a part cookery book with many recipes within, including tomato ketchup, which comes from an 1857 recipe. Mm. Brown Sauce, a mustard recipe that'll clear your sinuses. There's the recipe for hog's pudding. And what's and, hog's pudding? Um, hog's pudding is, uh, it, 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 it's, um, it's, it's uh, basically a, a bit like a, almost like a... Um, uh, a sausage pie mix, so you right. do so the belly pork and and other bits in and yeah. and, and spices. So it's quite a nice savoury um, thing. And then a breakfast frittata and lots of recipes, including a recipe for baked beans. And there are twenty six recipes in all. On top of this fascinating, humorous tour of culinary Britain, and it really is well worth the money in the read. It's lovely. You it's love book. that, book, I didn't do. You? I, yeah, I really do. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's your best breakfast dish what would you say oh gosh um oh that's really it is a bit difficult because when the, when a, a full english is um or full breakfast wherever is presented I, I really like that but then i do enjoy um kippers and um scrambled eggs oh, yes. uh, not like- together Yes. Oh. Yes. Okay. Yes, lovely. Kippers and scrambled Or kippers and then you do a poached egg on top. That's also very nice. The problem nice. with kippers, though, is it does last all day, doesn't it? 
What, in what way do you mean? Well, you sort of keep burping. Oh, no, I didn't have that problem. <laughs> no, no, I did. And, and I found a way that, you, you, you know, because the other thing about kippers in cooking, a lot of people don't like to do them because of the smell. Oh, yes. Um, and that's either grilling or frying. Uh, yeah. them. Then don't. What you need to do is, 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 is do them in the microwave. Oh. Um, do the microwave. One point. 20 seconds, 1 minute 20 seconds, put it in a dish, cover it, of course, One twenty seconds, perfectly cooked, but all the smell is contained. Oh, that's a yes. good idea. Yeah. That's the way you need to deal with your kippers. Yes. Yeah. So I quite like a full English breakfast. I, I must admit, and, and I, I, I am rather keen on going towards the Scottish variety because I do like uh, mealy pudding, and I do like... Is that uh, the same as... Um, that's the white pudding. It's also right. known as white pudding, yeah. um, which I think is a completely vegetarian one. As I think it is. Oh, I don't think so, is, is it? I don't, know, I, don't think there's, I don't know if there's any meat in that one. I'm not sure. I could be corrected Well, I suppose that. the blood is the black. That's the black, black pudding. pudding. And then you've got the blood. haggis, which you can have so at breakfast. So that's definitely yeah. not vegetarian, No, I think the mealy pudding is... Is, is literally is made from meal um oh, so right. and it's really tasty i like it very much there you are yes. so if anyone is listening and knows if vegetarian uh if mealy pudding is vegetarian do let us mm. know mind you of course um the the uh, the scottish manufacturer uh, mcsween's of um of edinburgh who make very fine haggises do oh, actually yes, do a vegetarian do. version Oh, do they? A vegetarian haggis. Well, mm. I do quite like a haggis. Mm, I do, say. I must admit. I've got some in yeah. the freezer. Mm. Oh, do you? We then do the neeps and tatties. Yeah. And but I think that's more a, an evening meal yeah, rather oh, yes, than a breakfast yes, yes. meal. But you can actually get, um, you can actually get um, uh, uh, haggis slices. Um, yes. Which they're, they're quite nice to have with a bit of breakfast with a nice crispy fried egg on top. Yeah. Mm. So after reading this book, do you think you're more like, because you quite like, sauces and condiments I do anyway, yes don't you? I do yes so there are any sauces and condiments that you made you think oh I'm going to read I'm going to buy a different type of condiment. well there's one that I did uh, what I did buy it's called Henderson's um, relish um, oh yes which is uh, uh, quite little known and it's um, made in Sheffield, and it's 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 um, uh, not dissimilar to Liam Perrin's Worcestershire yeah. sauce, but it's a more vig- vinegary based, and that's from Sheffield. So do if you do see it, um, Henderson's radish. That's also a nice one. But also a tip I've got for for listeners: if you like the taste of Liam Perrin's, but you actually want the consistency of a tomato sauce, g- get yourself some tomato ketchup mm. and liberally sprinkle sprinkle uh, Worcestershire sauce uh, Worcester sauce into it mix it all together and you'll have that wonderful Worcester sauce taste, but with the consistency of um the tomato uh, ketchup the tomato ketchup because Liam Perrins used to do that they used to do a, a thickened version they stopped uh, they stopped uh. selling or oh, certainly it's very difficult to get hold of but you can get around that by mixing it and, the, and in fact Liam Perrins actually did it with um, with uh, um, a tomato based sauce and so you have that nice thick sauce so that if you don't want that sort of thin yeah. runaway um, uh, condiment you can thicken it with um, uh, yeah so right. there we go yeah, you'll learn everything on you, uh, you do indeed on, uh, on uh, Turning pages. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's turning pages, listeners. <laughs> Do you know, I have also prepared a book. Have you? But you've talk, spoken I've so hogged, passionately. I've hogged pudding the whole thing, have red I? Red sauce, brown <laughs> sauce, you absolutely have. That we don't have time for oh, my book. Oh no, I'm so sorry. No, Heather. that's okay, because it was riveting and you were obviously passionate about this book. <laughs> I am indeed. And I think it was it was made for you. I remember you <laughs> buying it and you were so excited <laughs> to have found a book about British breakfast. Yes. And sauces and mustards. <laughs> I know. 
And condiments. I love the word condiments. <laughs> condiments. <laughs> yes. Actually, that's a great idea for um, for a topic. It's actually yeah, just the sounding yeah, words. Yes. No, it didn't oh, mean condiments. So, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I was preening myself uh, there. That yes. You were no. complimenting me on no. my suggestion. For <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Oh, and just to let you know, my copy of uh, Brown Sauce, yes, uh, yes. Red Sauce, Brown Sauce, is signed by the author. Uh, have you met mm-hmm. her? No. Oh, but that's great that the yes. book had uh, that the bookshop yes. had yes signed yes. copies. So I'm well very excited done. About that, yes. nice little independent bookshop, no doubt. Yes, in my hometown of Seven Oaks. Marvelous. Mm. That is great. Seven Oaks Bookshop. Right. So, books we have been re- recommending today, oh, in, a, in addition to Red Sauce, Brown Sauce. A British Breakfast Odyssey by Felicity Cloak, published by Mudlark. Are what? Are what? Let's have a look. Let's have a look. We have Queen Elizabeth, a Platinum Jubilee celebration, uh, which is published by DK Children's Books. Queen of Our Times, The Life of Elizabeth II by Robert Hardman, published by Macmillan. Uh, The Other Side of the Coin, The Queen, The Dresser and the Wardrobe by Angela Kelly, published by HarperCollins. The Queen and I by Sue Townsend, published by Penguin. The Uncommon Reader by Alan Bennett, uh, published by uh, Profile and Faber. And finally, Jilly Cooper's Riders, the first of the Rutshire Chronicles, published by Corgi. Indeed. Thank you for listening to Turning Pages on River Radio today. You tell your friends, please, we're always interested in receiving your recommendations of books to share. Listening to River Radio and Turning Pages has never been easier. Now we are broadcasting on DAB. You can also listen to River Radio on almost any internet-connected device or smart speaker. There are a host of wonderful programmes you can listen to, both music and talk shows, throughout the week. And don't forget, Turning Pages is on every Wednesday between 11 and 12. 12 noon. Absolutely. Set your alarms. And if you want to catch up on past programmes you've missed, then you can listen again either directly from the website or we're available as a podcast. Just search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Bye bye. Bye bye. In a world where radio stations are ten a penny... Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, lad. Thank you. There is one...